Welcome to Break Bias. I'm your host, Brad Kramer. It's the 36th episode, the Antonio Giovinazzi episode. And you might be thinking, wait, what? Gio was number 99. What are you talking about? Well, he was actually the last to sport 36 as a reserve driver. So it is technically his episode. I am here, though, ahead of the final race of the season, the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. We have some places in the championship to fight for, some farewells, and some intriguing storylines as well. But first and foremost, let's preview the race at Yas Marina. It's lights out and away we go! Alright, before we talk about the weekend, what has happened in the F1 world since Monday? Well, there's been some rumors, of course, the speculation that Nico Hulkenberg will be returning to F1 in Mick Schumacher's Haas seat for 2023 has continued to grow. And I just want to point out, because I, I've seen some rumors that are saying that Haas is going to be announcing this, like, literally before, right before the race, which is basically when this uh, podcast will be coming out. So I just want to point out that I'm recording this on a Wednesday night. If you hear um, this announcement from Haas, and then you listen to this podcast, and I'm talking about that it hasn't happened yet, that's why, okay? I'm recording on Wednesday night. But what I think is the more interesting rumor is F1's Jenny Gao, and this is a reliable source, guys, by the way. She tweeted that Italian media has started to report that another team principal in the paddock will be replacing Mattia Bonato at Ferrari. Wow. That is an absolute heater of a rumor. Uh, other sources were uh, all suggesting that it would be Alfa Romeo's Fred Vasseur. Uh, Jenny didn't say that in her tweet. However, I saw tons of other um, less reliable sources, let's say, on Twitter. Um, and I just want to give my thoughts about this because I sent that initial Jenny Gao tweet to my friends. And they were, and I, I kind of joked, uh, Gunther Steiner to Ferrari, like, I... I didn't think that it was actually going to be him and a friend of mine asked me hey, do you actually think that is who it is and I said honestly um it's probably Fred Vasseur and if there's one at a left field I would guess that it's probably like Andrea Seidel or something like that um Gunther uh, basically the only thing he has going for him is how close he is to Ferrari but I don't uh, Ferrari would I would I don't think they would ever promote him however the Fred Vasseur one is has to be the more likely one, and, and the, that's what the rumors are saying as well. And the reason for that is I'm thinking that Audi, when they come into the sport, they're going to want their own guy. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess my point is that it's more so that it's not a surprise that he's leaving Alfa Romeo, more so than, like, I'm making a case for him being the best fit for Ferrari. I honestly would rather say keep an auto there uh, I think everyone that rips apart Ferrari points all the blame onto him because he's the team principal and I think he does have to shoulder some of the blame however um, many F1 podcasts have made this point and I think it's extremely valid the team principal's job isn't just strategy it's not just managing the team on race day it is a huge part of of what's going on back at the factory. They have a huge role in that. And Ferrari undoubtedly has made huge steps when it term when it comes to the performance of their car. So 
and that's what he was hired for. He, he's a technical mind, and I think that they have excelled in that department. I think this has been a bit of a disappointing second half of the season, but is was Ferrari really trying to catch up in the development race? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what their plan is. I don't know enough about Fred Vasseur to be confident that this is the man that is going to bring Ferrari back, back to greatness. Um, but I do understand that he will probably be free from that team shortly. I don't know. I, I get why Ferrari want to make a change. However, I'm not sure if it's actually the right call. I just wanted to give my thoughts on that before we talk about the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, which is coming up in no time, guys. The season is almost over. I think we should get the negatives out of the way because I, I, I have been very critical of the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. And if me being critical of something leads to what just happened at the Brazilian Sprint, hopefully we get an absolute banger of a 2022 Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. However, I certainly have my doubts. Um, and I, I do expect some stories about 2021 to come out while F1 is here. And I'm sure that'll go over super well. Um, but what I care more about this track and the fact that it, it's the finale of the whole season I've have a problem with that I understand that in November and December you can count on it to not be snowing and you know that it's it's somewhat glamorous um but it just doesn't really make for good racing does it I mean Interlagos so many people make this point because it's the perfect finale what, what we just had is what you want when all the championship positions to fight for are on the table not being stuck in a in a DRS train on the back straight for the entirety of a stint, you know what I mean? Like the the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix can get very bland very quickly. Um, the drivers have been critical of this track as well. You know, many many drivers have given their opinion, but here's a quote from Daniel Ricardo after the dull 2020 race. I certainly don't want to talk the place down because I want to keep coming back here because it is amazing. But maybe we could play around with the layouts because, unfortunately, on Sunday, it is tricky. It's sometimes a bit grim from an entertainment point of view. Now, on to the positives. F1 did just that. They they did make positive changes for the 2021 race. And I, I believe that it was definitely improved, despite, you know, it being a bit tainted by the ending. Um, many drivers, again, even as soon as FP1 were talking up the updates and they weren't as critical of, of the race as, you know, previously. Um, but I have to say, uh, even on the old formats, the, there were some decent races here. So it's not the worst track in the world. Um, you know, in my mind, 2010, 2012, 2016, those have to be my favorites for, for Abu Dhabi. And that was on the old track, and now it's become better. Good races can happen here. It's just a bit of a dull finale when, you know, we race on Interlagos right before. I think that's the same for the 2023 season. I can't quite remember, but I'm pretty confident that that it is. So, yeah, I don't know. But let's let's talk about the 2022 race. Let's get into that. What is the storyline going in? And, of course, I'm going to get into all the championship stipulations in a moment because earlier in the week I didn't do the championship segment, saving it for this, for this episode. Um, but, obviously... The storyline is, if you disregard the championship, it's got to be Sebastian Vettel's final race and Mercedes's form. Uh, don't think for a second, though, that Vettel won't get his own segment. 
I'm not just going to talk about that it's his final race and gloss over it and then start talking about Mercedes, okay? So you hang in there. Vettel will have his due. But let's talk about predictions and, and see where I believe the Mercedes pair will end up. For pole position, honestly, I'm going to take Carlos Sainz. That might seem crazy. Uh, this is not my bold prediction. Uh, I just think Sainz, you know, he's done well here. He's got a podium last year, points in 2020 and 2019, a P6 in the Renault in 2018. I think he's had a quite strong end to the season as well. I'm excited to see his form next year, and I believe a pole position would be a fantastic way to end a poor and unlucky 2022 for the smooth operator. Smooth operator. Moving on. Behind him on the grid, I believe it will be probably Max. And, and then I'm going to go Charles. I, I'm not going to have the Mercedes duo in the top three in qualifying. I still think that is one of their car's issues, even if it's if it's good on forum. You know, the race pace might be there, but the qualifying is still a tad off. But I, I think they can finish ahead of Checo, to, to, to be completely honest. Um, in the race, I, I'm going to have Max getting it done, honestly. I know I keep just predicting Max, but it's pretty hard not to, honestly. I Yeah, I don't know. I think the Mercs and the Ferraris will be battling it out for the championship. They're not going to be too worried uh, about Max unless it's a straight fight with him for the win. And I think in the end, I think it might go Merc Ferrari, Merc Ferrari. I'll say Lewis, then Charles then George, then Carlos. And you're thinking, Carlos on pole, and then he finishes P5. What are you talking about? But after all, it's Charles who has more to gain from a better result. I think he'll have the better strategy. And, you know, they'll probably still have even pace. So I think qualifying could be extremely close. Even if even if Carlos is the one that ekes out pole, like I think it will it would be an extremely tight margin. And it's gotten closer and closer as the season's gone on, it feels like. But um, anyway, my bold prediction, uh, I think it's got to be about Seb, right? And I, I have to go with he finishes P7 and snags P6 for Aston Martin in the championship. What what a great send-off that would be because that really is the max result. And honestly, even that's overachieving a max result. To be honest. Like in the Aston Martin, the max result should be should be 11th, right? Because there's, there's five teams that are clearly faster than them. Um, but well, what else can you say? Let's go Seb. And, well, since I've already gave away a couple of the championship battles there, um, let, let's talk about what's to play for for all these teams. This segment, like I just said, is called What is to Play For in Abu Dhabi? Let's start with the drivers. First of all, we have Checo versus Charles. Uh, they're level for P2. And it will be decided on who finishes higher here. If for whatever reason they double DNF, it will go to Charles Leclerc because, well, he's had the more race wins this season. And that's what's what decides on countback. I guess I should have explained. If, if no one knows what I mean going back on countback, it basically is who has the more first places. If they're tied, if it's zero, then it's second, then it's third. And it just keeps going down. They're counting back. And whoever has the most results, that's why, for example, Nicholas Latifi and Nick DeVries are tied uh, with two points. However, since they both have a P9, Latifi wins the tiebreaker because he has the most P10s, 11s, 12s, because Nick DeVries doesn't have another result. Um, but I, I, th I was going to give my prediction on 
what will happen for every single one of these things um, that is still to play for. And I have Charles Leclerc finishing ahead of Checo. Um, however, it would be an incredible result for Red Bull to get 1-2 in the championship. And it's certainly possible. Red Bull always has the stronger race pace. But I honestly just have a weird feeling that I think that Ferrari will be strong here. And that, you know, Charles will have strong pace. Perez is going to struggle. I feel like what happened in Brazil might, you know, weigh on him a little bit here. Although Red Bull should be giving their max strategy for Checo. And that was no pun intended. It's kind of funny that I worded it that way. Um, But yeah, no, I'm going to go with Charles in that fight. We'll see what happens. It would be a bigger win for Red Bull for Checo to finish P2 than it would be for Ferrari. I don't think it's a big deal. I just think Ferrari should want to hold on to P2. But I also get the argument if they don't, but I will get to that in a second. The other thing to play for here is this isn't a battle. Uh, This is just Lewis, um, obviously, continuing his record. Grabbing a pole would also be a big deal for him as well, I think. But the win is, of course, the one that he needs to get for that record of winning a race in every single season. There's only one left to go. The car is as good as it'll ever be. Last race definitely was the one to get it. It gets a bit unlucky in qualifying, but I only say a bit because he had he had a chance to put in a good lap. It just wasn't good enough. And then he comes together with uh, Max in the race, which potentially could have been avoided. So, yeah, he, he was only a bit unlucky, but I wouldn't say he only has himself to blame. However... There are just, there were times in this year where I feel like the win was on and then it, his chance was just taken away from him. Uh, hungry and qualifying, if he put it even on the on the front row with George, I think he he might win that race. Um, you know there was a uh, there was Britain where I don't think he would have won. However, the safety car just completely ruined his chances. So yeah, he, that's definitely the play for Lewis getting that win. There's really no other results besides helping the team get p2 that is really there for lewis um this is probably my favorite driver battle to be honest this is one i think means more to these drivers than even lewis winning and that is fernando alonso versus esteban Ocon. the inter-team battle basically just for petty breaking rights it's it's a five point gap at the moment and i truly believe this means everything to Ocon. Being able to finish ahead, not just a legend like Alonso, but just beating a teammate. He's never done that in Formula 1. And I think Fernando, with all this bad luck that he's had, he knows that it's he's he wouldn't be ashamed to lose because he knows where he's been. He knows he's been the better Alpine driver this year. But I feel like he doesn't even want to give Ocon the satisfaction of beating him. He wants to assert his dom- dominance, even with all the unluckiness he's had. And, you know beat this bad kid like he said in in Brazil um to I guess the most points for the team the team still get fourth place because like I said that one's pretty much over but yeah I I think Alonso could do it however five points is quite a bit for team for guys who have been pretty tight all season we'll see but I, I can't wait for this there might be some fireworks on the track here now for the teams. Like I said, Red Bull won two in the championship for the first time. I think this would mean a lot to them. And it would be kind of crazy because I don't think this is the most dominant car that they've had. There's no question about that. 
but they've never had a one-two in the championship. And I think that would be kind of the final, I don't want to say nail in the coffin, that's not the right expression, but it's just the final assurance, reassurance that, you know, they have finally toppled Mercedes and their dominant era to finish one, two in the championship is pretty sensational. And yeah, I, I think that's really all there is left to say on that one. The, the, of course, the other big one is Ferrari versus Mercedes. There's a 19 point gap there. And the stipulation here is there's, there's 44 points that you can grab. That, that's the maximum one of the teams can get. So obviously if Ferrari gets that, then it's over. But for Mercedes, they can grab the 44 points. That is a 1-2 with a fastest lap like they just did in Brazil. Ferrari still, if they finished P3 and P4, they would still keep second place. They basically just need 27 points to clinch. And that is exactly 27 points. Yeah, 15 plus 12. So if they, if they grab that, they would still hold on. That is only an 18 or no 17 point uh gain for mercedes so yeah if uh if it were 19 well i guess ferrari would win on countback as well because they have more wins so yeah they they need to hope for a ferrari to basically finish sixth or lower it's possible we'll see alpine versus mclaren this one's basically over not really much to talk about here 19 points mclaren needs one of their best results of the season and another driver to score for it and, and both Alpines not to score. Like, you know what I mean? It's just not going to happen. Um, this one is interesting. Aston versus Alfa Romeo, five point gap. Um, these are both bottom five cars. So it will be difficult to even, you know, these teams don't even score five points from one race often. So to do it in the last one, Aston needs a P8 and a P9 or just six points. So like one P7. Um, because they lose on countback as well. So they can't even just get uh, five points exactly. Bottas has one P5. Aston does not have any P5s. But in a weird scenario, I did I did figure this out as well. If, for whatever reason, Vettel has an absolute worldie, and he finishes P5, and then I think it would be, what would it be? Bottas finishes in p7 and joe finishes in p10 that would be five points for no p8 p8 and p10 that would be five points for alfa romeo <laughs> this is a crazy scenario but vettel finishes p5 grabs 10 points that's a five point gain for aston martin then aston martin would win on count back because they would both have a p5 and then aston martin actually has more p6s Anyways, moving on, uh, Haas and AlphaTauri. This is a this is a win for Haas. I really think this Haas um, has the countback advantage. They have two points on AlphaTauri. It's going to be hard for AlphaTauri to even score two points. I think a P8 is just a bit out of reach, especially with Aston and Alpha. They're going to be going full out um, to try to score points themselves. It's going to be really hard for these two teams to score in Abu Dhabi. I don't see it happening. Um, but yeah, those, that's, what's all to play for guys. And I'm just going to leave it at that, give you the facts and get to what I think most of you will be waiting for. And that is talking about the, the drivers who are on their way out. And I guess what I have to say about their careers. Okay, here we go. Uh, 
Sadly, after this race, we say goodbye to one of the sport's best. Uh, so here is my tribute that I wrote for Sebastian Vettel. He, he was born to a simple family with Seb's father Norbert working as a carpenter and his mother Heike as a stay-at-home mom. At three years old, Seb got a cart for Christmas. He drove it around in the empty parking lot by his house all day and wouldn't stop until his parents had to drag him out of it uh, just for dinner or, or for bedtime. His family had racing in its blood. His father was a hill climb racer, but his hero was Michael Schumacher. He actually even got to meet him when Seb's karting career ramped up. He started to compete quite a lot, and his family realized his talent. So Norbert sold his hill climb car and took Seb to car shows to find sponsors for him. This uh, is a family that, you know, is, Formula One is extremely hard to break into. You really need the money. And like I said, a carpenter and a stay-at-home mom, it's not exactly going to cut it. So he, he was very young, though, and it, it was hard to, you know, find takers for sponsors with a young kid with so much to prove. The Vettels actually found a vodka company to put on Seb's racing suit. Not an ideal sponsor for a kid that young, but they were willing to take anything that they got. Between the ages of 10 and 13 is when the Vettel talent that we all know really started to show. With the support of everything his parents had, Seb continued winning races on the karting track despite the old equipment his parents could just not afford to upgrade. This, to Seb's fortune, caught the eye of Red Bull Racing. Due to the desperate need of finances, Red Bull accepted Seb to their junior team at age 11. That was that made him one of the youngest carters to ever join a Formula One academy. Seb quickly started to rise through the ranks, and he was later promoted to single-seater testing at age 15, when the legal age was only 16. I'm not sure how that happened. But does that remind you of anyone, by the way? Hmm, interesting. And, you know, while he was racing in Formula BMW in 2004, Vettel won 18 of the 20 races, which earned him his first championship ever in single-seaters. And in a year's time, Williams allowed him to test their car as a reward for his Formula BMW success. In the following year, Seb became the primary test driver for BMW Sauber while finishing second in the F3 championship. It was clear that this young kid had a lot of talent, and he was he was quickly promoted to Formula One in a race seat for BMW Sauber when he was the youngest driver to take part in a Formula One weekend at 19 years and 53 days, and he set the fastest time in that practice session. Of course, that record has since been broken by a Max Verstappen. But in 2006, he, he raced in Formula Renault 3.5, and I am not sure a lot of people know this about Sebastian Vettel. At Spa that year, Seb's finger was nearly sliced off by flying debris, a potentially disastrous moment in his young career. He was supposed to be sidelined for weeks, but instead, he raced one week later and finished P6 at Zandvoort. Pretty spectacular. Seb was leading that Formula Renault 3.5 championship before he got promoted to Formula 1 to replace Robert Kubica after his horrific crash at the 2007 Canadian Grand Prix. In his first entry, Vettel at the 2007 United States Grand Prix in Indianapolis, Seb finished P8, becoming the then youngest driver to score a point. When he was finally promoted to Red Bull's sister team, Toro Rosso at the time, 
He did not immediately shine. However, there were flashes. Until round 14 of the 2008 F1 season, a rain-soaked Italian Grand Prix, one dominated by Vettel in a midfield car at best. This has been one of the most impressive things I've ever seen in almost 20 years in Formula One. A Toro Rosso with Minardi DNA coursing through its veins, driven by a 21-year-old hot shoe with a great sense of humour who just makes you love Formula One all over again, is about to take his first Grand Prix victory and become the youngest winner ever. Toro Rosso gets its moment in the sun. Sebastian Vettel is a Grand Prix winner for the first time. He's the youngest ever, and that's one of the greatest things I've ever seen in Grand Prix racing. You have won the Italian Grand Prix. You have won the Italian Grand Prix. I'm proud of you. Bravissimo. Bravissimo. Impressionante. I don't know what to say. I, I miss the word. Grazie mille. Grazie mille. Ungara. That win actually helped lift Toro Rosso over Red Bull in the championship that year, something, I, again, I don't think a lot of people actually know. And it made it very clear that Seb needed to be promoted once again to the big team. Seb uh, actually already became the youngest pole sitter and youngest winner to win a race that weekend in Italy in 2008. But in Abu Dhabi 2010, in the most unlikely turn of events, when it appeared his teammate and rival Fernando Alonso were the championship protagonists, he also became the youngest world champion. Sebastian Vettel wins in Abu Dhabi. Okay, Sebastian, good job. I need to wait until everybody crosses the line. I need to wait, but it's looking good. You just wait, sunshine, you just wait. Hamilton, P2, Button, P3. There's another two cars coming around in 15 and 16. You wait, we just need the two cars, mate. Just those two cars. I think you'll like it. Rosberg, P4, Kubica. Kubica, P5, Dubist, Weltmeister. Ah, thank you, boy. Unbelievable. Thank you, I love you. Sebastian Vettel, you are the world champion! The world champion, well done, enjoy it! You are the man! Yes! Yes! Ring, ding, 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 ding! I love you! Thank you, boys. Thank you. I don't know. I don't know what to say. You are amazing. You are amazing. The Wonderkind would go on to win three more championships on the bounce with a historical fourth title in 2013 where he won 13 races, including nine in a row, to end the season, a record that still stands today. 53 wins, 122 podiums, and 57 pole positions later, Seb is statistically the third most successful driver in history, behind Lewis Hamilton and his hero, Michael Schumacher. Now, Seb is one of, if not the most humble drivers on the grid, he has no social media, and you'll rarely notice, you know, the riches that he has. You'll see him riding his bike. Uh, Lewis Hamilton has also named Seb as one of his allies. We all know how Lewis, you know, likes to use his platform to ignite change. Well, Vettel is no different, and he is passionate about what he believes in, evidenced by, you know, taking the knee with Hamilton, entering debates about climate change, 
picking picking the trash up at Silverstone after the race left behind by the spectators and all his other charitable actions. Sebastian Vettel, you will be sorely missed. I wish you all the luck in the final race, as well as in the amazing work that I know and I think we all know that you'll do outside of racing. Vettel has certainly left his mark on this sport, and I'm afraid the paddock just won't be the same without Seb. Well, that's it. I uh, I feel like I can't do all that for Seb, though, and not talk a little bit about Daniel Ricciardo. It, it just doesn't feel like a proper retirement, I think, and that's why it's it's still not really all hitting us that this could be the last race that we see from Daniel Ricciardo in Formula One. It's also the fact that he's likely to be around. He said it himself. He's still looking at a reserve drive for next year. But I think if it is his final race, he also deserves somewhat of a tribute because, you know, what a run it's been from his days at HRT to Toro Rosso to winning his first Grand Prix in my home country in 2014 to the epic redemption in Monaco in 2018 all the way to his unlikely victory at Monza last year where he said he hasn't left. Daniel Ricciardo has been a force to reckon with on the track, hasn't he? And in a strange way, and this is and this is not to discredit what he's done on the track because he's an eight-time race winner, but I think it's fair to say that he will be remembered more for being one of the most unique personalities the sport has ever seen. He is a shining light in the paddock There's a reason this guy is a superstar in Drive to Survive. He's also just so incredibly likable and hilarious. Everyone loves Dan Ricciardo. If you don't follow Formula 1 very, very often, or you don't don't keep up on it and you know a few names, Dan Ricciardo is surely your favorite driver. It's just his nature. He, He grabs your attention. He is just a wonderful human being. And I can't say I follow so many sports. I can't say I know another personality like him. He really is unique and has to be one of my favorite sportsmen ever for sure. But I think I'll end this brief Daniel Ricardo tribute with uh, probably one of my favorite quotes from him. And that is, I'm a high performance athlete, athlete sweat, sweat, baby. Kiki, ra. Sweat, sweat. Er, er. Anyways, <laughs> also shout out to Nicholas Latifi. I will keep this one short as well. He's the GOAT. So that will do it for the Reserve Antonio Giovinazzi episode of Break Bias. I'm your host, Brad Kramer, and I'll be back with episode 37 on Monday to review the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, the 2022 season finale. Goodbye.